schlesisches Tor. Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. Das ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargel-Weltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr. Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. And welcome back to an extra spooky episode of Spaßbremse. That's right. It should be Halloween by the time this episode is out. Michelle, what are you going for for Halloween this year? Well, I won't be anything dressed up on the actual day, but we did celebrate at the Kita and there were some costumes there and I chose the flying squirrel costume <laughs> because it was the least weird of the options. That was like one of the groups was called, a, used to be called flying squirrels. So the kids like knew that as an animal. So like little kids know what a flying squirrel is? Did they, did they respond well to it? Not the littlest one. They were just kind of confused. The whole thing was very overwhelming, I think, for most of them. And yeah. <laughs> what the, are you going as? <laughs> flying squirrel was like one of the most disappointing things for me as a kid when I like realized they like didn't fly like as an actual oh, bird. Yeah. Like that's a I think that's a pr pretty universal heartbreaker. Yeah. So you're you're kind of setting them up for disappointment by going as that, I think. Yeah. I also like, you know, tried to fly. It didn't look very funny. It wasn't very amusing. Mm tough yeah um well i was thinking about going as the great satan um like <laughs> i.e america um and just wearing like little devil horns and an american flag um maybe i maybe i need like a little toy predator drone or yeah something what would like be that. your accessories i, was just I think i need ask. like a yeah like a little barrel of oil and like a predator drone or mm. something like that yeah <laughs> That's we'll see. We'll see how people <laughs> respond to that. At least neither of us are going as Native Americans, which seems to be the like persistent mm. preference in Germany. Like, I've seen people post photos of that everywhere. Like, you see all the little German kids like dressing up and doing like little racist Indian chants. It's like I don't know how it got decided that it's okay to like dress up as the minority that like another country has oppressed. Like. It's like, it's like, oh, well, we didn't do the genocide there. So it's like, it's fine. You know, it's okay to make fun of them here. Yeah, it's not, not They're great. far enough removed. They don't really. Yeah, they don't feel very like responsible. And I always like, I always want to like, call excuse. people out. Not in an Germany. excuse. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm always like, please don't do that. Yeah, tough. Anyway, our topic today is actually even scarier than cultural appropriation. It's <gasps> German economic policy. And <laughs> the most terrifying thing of all Inflation, the dreaded, Ooh. the dreaded inflation, robbing the robbing the savings of your your heroic German savers. So we're going to get into that. Truly spooky stuff. Um, yeah, in this episode, Ted actually sits down with Dominic Loister of the London School of Economics and Desana Zukunft. Um, that's the same policy institute, actually, that our previous guest Philippa Ziegel Glöckner heads, and the interview kind of builds on some things discussed in that episode. If you want to check back and listen to it before you listen to this one, it's actually a good idea because it, like I said, it really builds off of that. It's episode eight. So go back and listen if you haven't already. Yeah. So Dominic and I get into some details about the 
you know, post-election aftermath in Germany, the coalition negotiations, and what that all means, you know, for actual German politics, economics, and and the European Union and the sort of wider world as well. Dominic's super knowledgeable and connects a lot of the dots um, between his expertise and some of the things we've done episodes on previously. It really ties together some of these issues about Hatsfia and the debt break um, and, you know, the low wage sector in Germany and, and, and all these things and like really makes it all make sense. So I think uh, you'll really find it valuable and enjoy that. And before we get to the main segment of the show, we just want to thank our Patreon subscribers again. Um, yeah, your support really helps us out and we appreciate it a ton. Um, if you haven't already, we'd love for you to join the Patreon and give your support. Let's us keep doing this pod, um, you know, as, as, as long as we can. Um, I want to, I would say indefinitely is my, is my goal for, for this podcast and a little support helps us reach that timeline. And of course, if you join, you also get access to our premium episodes. The first one on FDP leader and potential future German finance minister, Christian Lindner, recently dropped. And we've also got some spicy ones planned for you that'll be on the premium feed soon. Exactly. We are going to be talking about the Nazi past of German companies. Ted, Isaac, and I will each select a favorite business and examine its ties to the Nazi state. This will be the first episode of a series on Nazi enterprise, but we actually need your help for part two. So we were thinking if you subscribe to the Patreon and message us on there, you can actually submit your favorite old German company for consideration. And we will then go and dig up their sorted fascist past. <laughs> yeah, this will obviously um, makes a lot more sense and will be way easier if you send us a, like a, an actual company that was alive during World War II, like, you know, one of the big industrial ones, you know, that you're sort of, you're sort of classics like Siemens or something. You know, to be honest, like probably even the new tech startups are like founded by like indirectly money that came from that period. Like you can't really escape this, but... Um, no, give us any company. I say give us... You should know, we, yeah, just, like... Yeah. Well, I don't want to single out like Zalando, but like I'm sure we could find <laughs> something there. <laughs> potentially. Potentially. Um, allegedly. Alleg yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Without uh, having done any research, yeah, I'm pretty just pure speculation. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing against them in particular. We're just talking about the the ubiquity of of Nazi money and in, in the economy here. I'm sure they're totally clean. And so, <laughs> last thing before we roll the interview, our episode on Christian Lindner. You know, I would say I would say it's really kind of kind of driving some discourse. It's really jumping, uh, jumpstarting that discourse. You know, I think. Uh, I think it's fair to think of ourselves as like thought leaders on German politics at this point. I, I think I now apply that label to myself, you know, very, very humbly, of course. All right, Dad. So, you know, after we recorded, you had uh, Adam Tews and Joseph Stiglitz write an op-ed in Zeit criticizing him, uh, which hilariously enraged the German business press. Um, was that after we put the episode out as well, or just after we recorded it? I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm like pretty sure we have Nobel Prize winning economists as our Patreon subscribers. I just assume it's because of us. Maybe my mom emailed them the recording. <laughs> and yeah, so in addition to that, we had a nice Deutsche Welle article come out with some pretty cool details about Christian's life that we just want to add in to kind of to kind of supplement our, our main episode on him, because there's some some good details here we don't we don't want you to miss out on. Uh, Michelle, could you fill us in? All right, we have a Deutsche Welle article 
like Ted said, it's titled Christian Lindner, the FDP's Clever Tactician by Volker Witting. Witting. And under the subheading One Man Show, we're just going to do a little reading for you here. Flashback to Berlin. It's the last Saturday before the election and one of Lindner's final appearances after a long and grueling stint on the campaign trail. Sporting one of his many stylish suits, he appears on the scene and is quickly surrounded by a crowd of young men and women, especially young men. They get their autographs and are clearly excited about what the FTP stands for. Yep, stands for being the child of a landlord, I guess. Um, <laughs> I like that they're like young men and women. Well, not really women. <laughs> <laughs> and one of his many stylish suits, like he just wears like blue suits that you'd find from like... I've never every, seen him in anything else. <laughs> every like business guy, like, it, I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, he's like, they like fit at least, which I guess is rare for German politicians. But like... That's true. They're just, they're just blue suits. <laughs> Continuing here, no surprise, therefore, that the Free Democrats, alongside the Greens, were among the two parties that made big gains among young voters. For many, of course, Lindner is the main attraction. He stands for success. He is social media savvy. He is stylish. He's conscious of his looks and keeps fit wherever, <laughs> wherever possible, mainly on a rowing machine. He has even had a hair transplant. Nothing, no way to connect with the youth um, more than having a hair transplant. But I mean, honestly, maybe that's why he does so well with young men, because the kind of kids that mm. go bald at 19 and bring briefcases to college are the kind of kids that vote for him. So they're like, there is a man not afraid to get a hair transplant. And they're like, that's that's inspirational. Um, and so I, I need to see polling data on how many people know that he has had a like they like, get to guess and then you know yeah that's the kind of public policy get into those we need yeah, those are the real those are the real facts that we need yeah absolutely <laughs> also like again stylish like he just looks like a guy it tells you a lot the about the bar is they, so uh, low yeah, the bar is exactly. the floor yeah it's yeah for his supporters for his fans he is cool he keeps up with social media as seen by this personal Instagram post showing Linder and his partner on vacation. He's posting on vacation. I mean, he's, what's not to love? He's taking really cringy selfies um, and putting them on Instagram. Yeah, he's 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 with the kids. <laughs> That's what the kids do is they <laughs> post. <laughs> um, Linder was once married to a journalist. After that ended in divorce, he entered into another relationship with a young journalist. He works hard to keep his private life just that, private. So many were surprised when, shortly before the election, he gave an interview to one of Germany's most popular gossip magazines, Bunte, expressing wishes to start a family soon. Oof, the Lindner children, that'll be, that'll be a bunch of winners. <laughs> I would just, I don't know why, but like, reading that sentence, expresses wishes to start a family soon, triggered the like, American presidential thing where you like have to have a pet and i was like i bet he already has a pet it's not like angela merkel had a pet and they like do you have yeah because you don't have to have a family because she didn't have one yeah i don't know if it's as much of a custom here i mean what when i hear that like expresses wishes to start a family soon it reminds me of people saying like 
everyone deserves the opportunity to have access to affordable health care. <laughs> and like, and like this like wishy-washy thing of like, I, I'm going to have the opportunity to maybe do the thing. He's like, I'm, I'm expressing wishes to start one soon. And it's just like, that's like, it feels, it feels very like kind of hedging, you know? Mm. Right. What's more, he admitted to being confronted with a quote, thoroughly feminist perspective by his second partner in contrast to a reported propensity for macho humor. Christian Lindner is woke now. He is a feminist ally. And um, yeah, if if you don't support Christian Lindner for the finance ministry, you're actually, you hate women. And you hate being cool yeah. and youthful. He's a feminist now. I love this, like, <laughs> this thing. <laughs> but, yeah, also, like, confronted with a thoroughly feminist perspective. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, he is a feminist now or he's, like... Oh, uh, like I'm used to making crude jokes and this like my girlfriend now is like telling me I shouldn't do that. Like I don't like I don't quite know how to read that paragraph, but propensity for macho humor. Like <laughs> we need to uncover the like hidden Lindner tapes and get those those macho jokes. Like we need like a we need the Christian Lindner's grab them by the pussy tape. I think there like have been like allegations that he said some pretty sexist stuff. Yeah, that that wouldn't shock me at all. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's just a little a little nice dose of, of facts about about Christian. Just uh, just a little something for you, because we couldn't we couldn't let the hair transplant slide and not inform you about that. But, you know, real rising star in German politics. And be sure to check out the Patreon episode for lots more on him. All right. Without any further distractions, let's get on to the interview with Dominic Loisda. Yeah, this is a really good one. I think you guys will enjoy it. Here we go. Welcome to Spaßbremse, and I'm happy to have Dominic Loisdur here to join us. Um, Dominic is of Detenat, um, where Philippa came from, from a previous interview, and of the LSE. So welcome, Dominic. Thanks for having me, Ted. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, so, you know, it's now a few weeks removed from the German election, and we had, you know, a previous talk about kind of German uh, macro policy um, and fiscal policy uh, before the election, kind of previewing, you know, what, what could be different afterwards than the sort of ongoing dogma that had, had pervaded German economic thinking for quite a while. And now we've got another great expert on the topic and um, that we can really dive into what might change after this, um, what might not change as the case may be. Um, and yeah, just look at the implications for Germany, German politics, the economy, and then kind of the wider world in Europe as well. So Dominic, just to start, what were your thoughts post-election, um, you know, working on working on some of these topics? I know you just started at Desernat, um, and in the context of your research and your work there, what did you think post-election? I think the immediate reaction, I think this is widely shared um, you know, in our circles, uh, those who were, who were hoping for a big SPD victory and perhaps a greater share for the Linke as well, the big changes um, you know, has been foreclosed on because um, in the end, the gap between the CDU and, and its SPD was much smaller than imagined and the Linke sort of crumbled into insignificance almost. So the... The, the coalition that I think many were supporting, at least on our end, uh, that would have had the biggest um, expansionary impact in fiscal policy terms 
red will be red, red, green. Uh, that's not going to materialize you know, mathematically. And so then I think after we realized that the salience for these small technical reform fixes grew. In other words, now that we essentially can say that wholesale reform of the existing fiscal rules for the Schuldenbremse in Germany, which is constitutionally enshrined and which limits um, uh, deficits to 0.35% um, at the federal level, and of course the stability and growth pact in Europe, it, it was quite clear then already that this is not going to happen, not in any meaningful form. And I think what we thought is, well, therefore the kind of proposals that we have are going to grow in relevance. And just to, to repeat for your listeners, uh, what we're particularly concerned about is how do we find politically feasible sites, like you know, ways to, to sidestep these, these, these rules. And what that entails is changing the rules that are governed by ordinary law and that don't require constitutional changes in Germany or um, unanimity at the European level. Um, and treaty changes. Right. And to, to contextualize that, basically, I mean, we mentioned this on the previous episode, I believe it was episode eight, um, but we can put that in the show notes as well, since that's that's important to understand some of this stuff. But effectively, you have these limits on debt in Germany, which creates a sort of permanently understimulated both German economy and European economy. So you have this huge low wage sector in Europe, you have Germany with this giant trade surplus, creates a lot of imbalances and inequalities you know, both both within Germany and between different countries. And so the idea is, right, that like to, to do anything about the actual constitutionally mandated debt break, you need a supermajority to do that. And so you're kind of focusing on on things around the edges that can improve it, given this sort of very seemingly unchangeable constraint of the debt break itself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the debt break was written into the Constitution in 2009. So in response to the crisis, by the way, with you know, relatively broad backing from all parties. So the, the centre-left here is not innocent, the Greens aren't innocent. Um, there seems to be sort of a, a general tendency in German politics to maintain this sort of deflationary equilibrium, if you like. The, the, the easiest way to summarise the consequences of these rules uh, is that as soon as the economic performance is above its historical trends, they immediately call for a, a dampening of um, spending and therefore demand and therefore essentially a choking off of that economic recovery, which means you, the, the path of free future economic growth is always kept much lower than it could be. And as you say, that has all sorts of consequences for Germany and Europe. In Germany, it, also, it has also meant extraordinarily low investment. And I think you could summarize the Merkel era as being an era of exceptionally low net investment into fixed capital, despite historically low interest rates and indeed negative interest rates, that it would have made it very easy for Germany to actually borrow, with all sorts of consequences for the rest of Europe. As you say, it leads to um, a very high net export and, and sort of net export. In other words, Germany exports a lot, but they also import way too little because there's too little domestic demand to... Um, to, to generate the demand for import will also absorb some of the exports, so to say. And that leads to you know, very high sort of, um, a lot of money sloshing around in Germany that has to go somewhere. And that capital also flows in the into the periphery countries and has done so in the run-up to the Euro uh, Eurozone crisis. 
and particularly for Spain and, and Greece, with all sorts of consequences there. So there, there's, there's this complex of different topics, the trade surplus, capital flows to other countries, underinvestment domestically that can be attributed at least to some extent to the policy bias in German macro policy making and to these fiscal rules that were implemented in 2009 based on the stability on the European fiscal rules. Right. And so you have this this kind of bizarre setup where there's this broad based support for these fairly deflationary policies and but actually, like if you look at the like broader European context, like Germans are very underpaid and like there's been very low wage growth. And so there is a potential policy change that Germans are paid more, which obviously helps the actual population itself. They're then able to spend more, especially from abroad, balancing the trade surplus a bit. And so it's it's interesting how the national interest is conceived at the political level, even though what actually might benefit most of the population is is a pretty clear break from this policy. I mean, this is similar to the argument um, in that, that book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, right, with Michael Pettis and, and Klein. And so, I mean, we don't need to get into that that exact work necessarily, but, but this like broad idea that these policies disproportionately benefit German export capital at the expense of most of the population. Like, do you broadly agree with that thesis? Yeah, I do. Um, the thing I would add is, it's kind of overdetermined, right? There are different things pushing in the same direction. This suits the interest of German uh, manufacturing capital, which which can, you know, essentially retain a higher share of total income. It has higher profits. It can say that it needs to do so to remain competitive in the global economy, which uh, is partly true, but also partly debatable. I mean, there seems to be quite a bit of space for. You know, German products have you know, very good elasticities, as, as we say. In other words, if a Volkswagen would be um, 50,000 instead of 45,000, the demand would still be quite high for them, it seems. So there's a sense in which German capital is quite powerful and, would, and had a huge hand in keeping down wages, or putting a high lid on wages. And as you say, real wage growth has been pretty low and that has contributed to this problem of insufficient domestic demand and high trade surpluses vis-a-vis other countries. I would say, however, that, you know, it's hard to separate where ideas come in. Um, and it seems to be unique in Germany that there, there's a, a sense that people do things like that they know, that they don't know that are uh, against their, their own best interests. And I think that's the way in which ideas influence how people perceive their long-term interests. So there's a part that is certainly ignorance rather than... Um, you know, malice um, on, on behalf of um, very powerful actors. The other thing I would say, um, people tend to talk about, you know, the, the effect of labor market reforms in the um, the early part of the 2000s, right? So famously... Yeah, being hard sphere, as, as we've talked about before. You've talked about hard sphere a lot, um, which is yeah. now probably history. It might be yeah. replaced with something that may or may not be better, um, perhaps marginally so. Um, yeah, it seems. I mean, they, they, yeah, they say they want to repeal the actual thing. It's not really clear what's going to come after that. So it feels like it's become the sort of like bogeyman term that you say you're going to get rid of, but then you know what actually what actually comes after that. Yeah, we don't know. Obviously, it seems that it might be the same, but with less um, less severe sanctions. Perhaps um, it's it's not clear. Um, I wouldn't want to speculate. But it, it's Hatsby has been this bogey term, as you say, because it did. Um, you know, it has this very very severe sanctioning regime and did put a very 
it is it's very, it's very little money and it, it has contributed to um, German labor markets sort of splitting apart into the the sector that is you know still covered by sectoral bargaining and, and has high union density it has permanent contracts and then another fairly large part of the labor market which emerged after the 2000s in the early 2000s which is part-time work zero hour contracts and more precarity and partly driven by the fact that if you go into welfare you get heart sphere which is very low so um, it keeps people into these very poorly paying jobs essentially this is all true i think to, to an extent i would simply say that if we evaluate German macro policy, it has to be done in the context of what was happening in the global economy at the time. So the, the process of global economic integration and the, you know, the competitive disinflation in that economy, in other words, especially export economy, economies like, like Germany trying to, to, to retain price competitiveness, in other words, by keeping wages to a certain uh, keeping wage growth down a bit, in other words, for their markets, for, for their goods not to be priced out of markets, that's surely also played a role. Of course, you can always say these external forces you know, impose constraints. It depends on how you deal with those constraints. But in that sense, I would also say that there's something to be said to the, for the German system because in a different context, this could have led to mass unemployment, but it didn't. So while the same thing that makes Germany so, so entrenched, also in terms of um, you know, big business interests, is also what made it, in a way, more resilient to, to these kind of pressures because it's very, it is still very cooperative. As you, as you probably mentioned before, union density has declined over the last 20 years very dramatically, but the fact that they managed to distribute the, the, the burdens of this adjustment um, in, in the form of part-time work and you know, these more precarious forms of work rather than mass unemployment is still, still shows that it could have been much worse. But clearly there's something wrong with the growth model per se if you have to do that. Right. And so this is sort of, I think you can kind of see the the early 2000s with, you know, the sort of sick man of Europe, Germany, about 10% unemployment as a kind of like, it seems like a bit of a divergence point for me, right? Where like Germany knows that what's going on now is not acceptable, like 10% unemployment. It's not what you want. And so there, you know, there, there are multiple ways to try to get out of that, right? You're more of like your classical kind of like Keynesian type stimulus to, to increase domestic demand, get people working again. Germany... I think you could probably say partially for historic factors, probably some of these ideational factors you alluded to, also due to constraints, you know, within Europe um, and like chooses another path. They choose deflation in order to increase export competitiveness and low wage economy to get people working also under the threat of Hatsfia sanctions. So export export um, industry on one hand to keep people working and low wage sector on the other for, for a different segment of society. And they choose they choose a very different path than you might think is the maybe more desirable alternative and more egalitarian one. In particular, because it's not clear whether it was the labor market reforms that resuscitated German competitiveness. Right. It was around the time that they that monetary unification happened in Europe and. Yeah. For Germany, the effect was a, a very steep um, devaluation of their currency, and that might have that effect on the pricing of their goods abroad might have been enough to create that huge surplus and to get the, the engine back um, to work. So there would have been space for sustained wage growth because of this, uh, because of the euro, in other words, and because right. And just to to clarify on this for for people that aren't aren't super familiar with how this would work in the context of the eurozone, is essentially having a single currency for very different types of economies means that in practice you're going to have a undervalued currency in more 
guess you could say developed economies like Germany and an overvalued currency in a lot of the sort of the, the less developed and competitive ones, especially in Southern Europe, right? Is that the, that's the dynamic at play here? Yeah, and you know, in particular because these um, other economies, and particularly the Italian one, which has a very sophisticated manufacturing sector as well, which has a fairly large export sector, let's put it that way, they were more of a high inflation economy than Germany. And they relied much more on devaluing their currency to um, resuscitate their competitiveness. This could, they could no longer do, of course, after they joined the euro because they didn't have their own currency anymore and therefore couldn't, the central bank didn't have control over you know, the euro in Italy. Um, so they couldn't do right. these open market operations that devalue their currency. You could, but you could say that this is my take, a sort of a slightly different take from the left is that doing so isn't very useful anyway. What you're just doing by devaluing your currency is shifting income from labor, from wages to profits. Because let's say you're, you have negotiated a wage increase um, um, as, as a union member and you, that wage increase is now more or less nullified by the devaluation, which is only meant to actually you know, maintain corporate profits so that the Italian economy can... can it's not going to go under, and that's precisely the kind of thing that the, that the German corporates are accused of doing, but in a different way. So their way of competitive devaluation is through wages, uh, and their capacity to do so was somehow much more significant. And that's an open question: why, why was it possible to keep wages so low in Germany? And then you could also bring in the um, expansion of the European Union to Eastern Europe. Uh, in addition to the pressures from the global economy. Because you could argue that, okay, unlike for Italian workers, setting aside the differences in industrial organization in these two countries, where they're very different union types and you know, it's more coordinated in Germany, uh, you know, for the German worker, the third world starts 100 kilometers east of Berlin, in other words. So you've seen these large industrial conglomerates in Germany and you know, auto manufacturers extend their, 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 their supply lines into Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, etc., where labor is quite cheap, and that is sort of an extra you know, bludgeon, so to say, that they can use to, um, to keep wages down domestically. And I think that story does make quite a lot of sense. Absolutely. I mean, you have this, there's a bunch of things happening all at the same time, right? Like, is, is with more globalized production, you can have this sort of like, and I've talked to people in in uh, German unions and you know who've who've done organizing there, and they say you know there's this constant threat that was deployed by management anytime they would ask for higher wages. So they say, well, I don't know. Do you want your job to go to China? Do you want your job to go to Hungary or Poland? Like, if if you demand too much here, we'll just move the factory. And so it 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 undermines your your bargaining position. In addition to to labor unions themselves shrinking and becoming weaker, the there's this sort of like alternative option for capital now that they can threaten labor with, which contributes to this this whole problem. In addition to the the currency levels, um, you know, I should explain just the mechanics there. Like, if you have an undervalued currency, it makes your exports more competitive, so people buy more of your stuff, have a trade surplus. If an overvalued currency, your goods are expensive abroad, people aren't going to buy as much of your stuff. So that's the that's the basic mechanic here. But there's there's all these things all kind of culminating at the same time to produce these very unbalanced dynamics you see in Europe at this time? A lot of moving parts. And um, again, it has to be said that stuff is happening elsewhere uh, too. So the opening up of uh, the manufacturing sector to the global economy happened in the US uh, before it happened to Germany and had much more severe consequences there. 
so it's really if you look at this comparatively you have to say which which country had the better institutional setup to either adjust for these burdens in an egalitarian way or to distribute the consequences thereof and i think germany is sort of somewhere in the middle there right i mean the, the countries like denmark are as open to the global economy as germany are but they've done a much to, to a much more significant extent this you know, pre-distribution and redistribution. So they actually have even more steeply progressive taxes than Germany has also on wealth, and they have all sorts of programs to you know to, to to adjust for these things. Like people talk too much about retraining; it's sort of a silver bullet that never really worked. But in in Denmark, at some point, they spent four percent of their total GDP on on retraining uh, people and integrating them back into the economy. Uh, I think there are different ways of adjusting, and of course, you can. You can still lay some blame at the at the feet of the German elites in that period for not knowing and not being willing to adjust in different ways, um, and thinking that the only way to adjust was by cutting welfare and by, by putting a lid on wages, which I would uh, probably disagree with. Right, and so that that does a great job of really bringing us to the present moment. And, you know, you have this very long, like hard austerity push, especially under Schäuble when he was in the finance ministry under Merkel. And then it seems like during the last couple of years with with Schultz in there, especially during the Corona crisis, some of this old dogma and this very, very stark focus on austerity as the way to maintain competitiveness and just sort of like, you know, there's a there's a moral attitude to it that debt debt is, you know, inherently immoral. And so this starts to shift a bit, right? And so how do you contextualize the last couple of years, especially going into the new government, which looks like an ample coalition between the Greens, SPD, and the very kind of radical free market FDP? Do you see kind of a momentum continuing, especially maybe with a slightly more progressive coalition? Or do you think this is going to stall and Germany kind of went as far as it's comfortable going? I mean, that's the yeah, that's the million dollar question. I, I first of all, I think that the COVID crisis really changed a lot. I think the consensus globally is also changing that you know uh, the fiscal policies of the last ten years should not be repeated. A very conservative German economist named Lars Feld recently published an op-ed with a, a more social democratic uh, economist, I, let's say, in the pages of the centre right. Daily, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, arguing for some sort of sidestepping solution to the debt break. This man, Lars Feld, had been perhaps the most highly credentialed and enthusiastic supporter of the debt break. He used to be the, the head of the German Council of Economic Advisors, and known for being quite orthodox in these matters. So there's something changing clearly among German elites. I think that if you look at the top brass in the German uh, you know, political parties, there's recognition that the, the, the rules don't work. It's simply a matter of having the political coordination and the majority is needed in Germany and in Europe to change these things. Because of how German politics is structured, I think there's a very strong conservative bias because you have to deal with so many different moving parts uh, in Parliament, in, within your coalition, within the second house of Parliament, the Bundesrat, uh, where you, the majorities are also quite difficult and you need to look at the different you know, federal level polit- uh, po- politics and essentially for anything to, to happen you have to really stick your neck out. You need quite a lot of political capital. So it's quite, 
it's quite possible that everyone secretly is um, desperate to change the rules but can't do so because the, the political wherewithal to do so is just not there. And the same is, is uh, you know, true for the European level where uh, one veto is essentially enough to torpedo any change. And, and that's why it's so hard. Right. And this, like, I mean, this is a bit a bit nerdy and, and academic, but, you know, sort of crudely in like political economy and, and other like political science, people talk about the three eyes, right? Like ideas, interests and institutions. And here it's like an, it's an, kind of a bizarre setup, right? Where it seems like the ideas have shifted at the elite level, like you said. I mean, both the work you guys are doing, you know, a bit a bit more on the the radical, but not, you know, not not totally out there side. And then as well as very mainstream economists changing changing their views and someone like, you know, even Olaf Scholz as finance minister doing that, as well as the interests of large swaths of the German population, as we discussed. But there's this like institutional stasis that seems to be that seems to be blocking it. Um I guess with how the parties are structured, how the institutions are structured, like you said, it's a bit bizarre to have the SPD, you know, you'd think like traditionally the party of workers, although of course that's changed a bit, still kind of having a very similar attitude as the CDU, at least traditionally. I mean, this is, this is a bit of an anecdote, but after, after the election night, we, you know, we had this live show, we went out to the bar and um, ran into some SPD guys who were, who were quite elated and, you know, they, they seem to have very progressive views. We were like, well, why are you the SPD and, and, and not, you know, Die Linke or something? He was like, well, my two greatest beliefs in the world are that we need to get rid of Hatzfia and get rid of the debt break. And, like, that's why I'm in the SPD. And I was like, well, but your party, like, helped do both of those yeah. things. And so there's like a, there's like a weird disconnect, what it, what it seems like people want and what the parties can do. Yeah, and that's another phenomenon that's, that's again, quite pronounced in Germany, but also elsewhere, which is that parties have become cartels, essentially. Um, then there might be quite a large base of you know, young politicians who, um, you know, who are not so caught in their ways and who are quite smart and who know what has to change. But it's impossible, very hard for them to actually get on a list to get elected because of how the old party elite control, controls the party infrastructure and because of how difficult um, the party landscape makes new entries you know, into the political landscape. It's not as bad elsewhere. So in Italy, for instance, and we might talk about Italy in a bit because that's what I focus on, that it's an art. Um, the, you have new parties every other, every other year and it's far less entrenched yeah. there. But in Germany, I think cartelization, which is um, a term that you know, political scientists have been developing in recent years, is particularly bad. And that's why you see these strange things of you meeting very idealistic young SPD dealers Having joined the SPD to change the thing that the SPD top brass itself enthusiastically supported until a few, like two or three years ago when Olaf Scholz, when he was elected finance minister, said, oh, you know what, all those things I said about reforming the fiscal rules are wrong. In the end, a German finance minister is a German finance minister. So in other words, I'm not going to be different from Wolfgang Schäuble. And now even Scholz is, has changed his mind quite clearly. I think that's due in part to the people who surround him, which are some you know, younger people or people who don't actually come from, who don't have a political background. People like his, more or less his deputy, the Secretary of State, uh, Jörg Kukis, who was actually a Goldman Sachs uh, um, executive before he became Secretary of State. And he has more progressive fiscal uh, views on fiscal policy than most of the, the SPD old guard. There's a changing of the guards, but it's happening very, very slowly because of how the party system is structured. Right. 
And so moving on, I guess, to the the kind of specifics of the next coalition. I mean, it seems like Lindner is going to be in there, right? I mean, like, and he's he's quite radical. I mean, he, in terms of, you know, wanting um, wanting the debt break to stay, like being being anti any new taxes, you know, it seems like having him in charge of Germany's finances will, will very much limit spending and could even halt some of the progress we've seen over the past two years. How influential and how dangerous could that be? I mean, I know Adam Tooze recently wrote an op-ed saying that this is like this huge threat to Europe, almost like an existential threat. Um, Macron a few years ago said like, if Lindner gets in the finance ministry, we're fucked. Mm. So that's one side of it. And I tend to lean to that. I mean, you've had a little bit of a pushback. I know um, Christian Odendahl of the, the Center for European Reform. Also, he had said kind of on this other side, well, the German finance ministry might change Lindner more than Lindner changes it. I don't know how much I buy that. But so say Christian Lindner gets his gets his prize, gets his finance ministry. What does that mean? First of all, it's 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 not a foregone conclusion. Of course, technically, all these seats are up for grab, but I think, in my view, and I would say in the view of others, uh, it's probably going to happen. Right? So that's what they wanted all along, and there's no other way to get them on board. That means a wholesale reform of SGP and children are off the table. But I don't think that Linta is a radical of any kind. He, he's not very ideological, uh, unlike some of his um, counterparts in the CDU. He really just cares about how he's seen by his constituency. In other words, he wants to be seen as someone who keeps the house in order. Uh, but he doesn't give a damn, really, I think. Uh, and, and that's why I think Ordenthal um, has a point that maybe then the institutional pressure of someone who hasn't much experience um, running a ministry might actually get to him. And I hope that's true. But what it means, again, is that these solutions that don't involve actually changing the debt break might be more plausible. And I think I think you know, Lindner is a bit of a he's a bit of a hack that faces, uh, but even he might realize that um, that that austerity is probably not going to be a, a good. You know, doubling down on austerity again is not a good idea. Yeah, and I wonder how much the I mean the FDP is polling at some of its highest ever, and I wonder how much that gives him a little breathing room. I mean, you you have this bizarre dynamic in Germany where. Well, I think generally the FTP is a bit of a culture war party, like being so dogmatic about the tempo limit, the, the speed limit, or yeah. like thereof on the Autobahn. And that was like one of his big things he had to preserve. But you have this weird thing where balanced budgets are kind of like a culture war issue. And people, it's, it's almost separated from actual financial logic where it's, I mean, this is, it's a bit of like a hack thing to say, but people always say, you know, oh, like Schuld is, is debt and is, is shame yeah. in German. And like, you know, that, that gets repeated a bit too much. But like, there is a very moralizing logic to how debt is discussed. And I think particularly, although not exclusively in Germany, and, and Christian Lindner kind of like symbolizes that of like, I'll, I'll keep the balanced books, you know, regardless really of the financial consequences. It's totally true. And there's, you know, there's more to the, the obsession with fiscal rules and keeping debt down than, uh, and keeping the economy from ever reaching its potential than fighting inflation and keeping inflation down at any cost. It's also this bizarre cultural path dependency that you, that you address. And I think it's not the only country. I mean, obviously, the United States is perhaps a more severe case of spending and the deficit being a, a, a culture war issue. 
Uh, it's just something that people are cottoning onto. I mean, oh, becoming better at in, in Germany, right? So by being more explicitly... Well, it's, a, it's a culture war issue in the sense that everyone wants to talk about it, but no one will actually do anything about it. Like Germans actually, like, they actually address the issue. I mean, when Republicans cry about it all the time when they're not in power. And then when they get in there, they blow up the deficit anyway. So there's, it, it seems like just a political weapon to me, but not an actual reality that gets enacted ever. Well, you, the, the thing like a fiscal cliff where you could really brinkmanship your way off, um, off to, to, towards a default, like in the US, it doesn't exist, but yeah, you're right that no other country has written this goddamn thing into their constitution which, in such a severe way, which is, it does seem like they, they all lost their minds um, after the crisis in 2009. And I, I also think that people are, it, it's just one of these impulsive myopic decisions that seemed politically expedient at the time, and that was enacted by people who didn't really understand the consequences of what they were doing. In other words, they, they thought it would have this effect, but in fact, it had the opposite effect. It's actually, it makes it harder to keep finances sustainable. It makes it harder to um, have a sustainable fiscal policy um, in general. And I, I do think that people regret that move now. It's just that, again, given the structure of German politics, you need a supermajority in, in, in the parliament to change it. You can't do that at the moment. There's no, there, there, aren't, there aren't such majorities in the current coalition, as you say. Right. And so moving on, um, sort of last note about about. Germany specifically, before we get into some of the European issues, which are, are really directly related to this, and I guess continuing our sort of short uh, great man theory of the last two decades of German politics, moving from Schäuble to Schultz to Lindner. Now, Jens Weidmann, um, of the head of the Bundesbank, has said he will step down. What kind of impact might that have? I mean, you, you, you again have this bizarre culture war thing where I think it was the cover of, of Die Welt, another pretty conservative paper, where where you have Jens Weidmann holding like a crusader sword. And it said, you know, like the, the last defender of the German saver, which is like held to be a very like, you can almost think about it how like small businessmen are talked about in America as like this sort of perfect little class that like needs to be defended and represent the best of the country. Mm. But in Germany, that's the the saver and like we need to defend them. And so, you know, by keeping inflation low, Weidmann was the was the defender of this German saver. And so I mean, that's just kind of a, a funny thing on top of that. But how might this process to replace him factor into this mix? I don't think we know. I mean, it's certainly it's just a it's another bargaining trip and already people because the negotiations are ongoing you can't really take people seriously right so i think um the ftp if i'm not mistaken this is sort of you know rumor mill i'm not sure whether this is part of the uh, yeah, public record already but they're lobbying for this one guy who is uh, unbelievably orthodox and he's who's sort of a culture warrior on debt but it might just be a reaction to other people supporting Marcel Fratscher, the you know, the guy I mentioned, the, the, the more social democratic economist um, who's very prominent in German uh, macro circles. Right. It's very it's very contentious. It's hard to see uh, how it will play out and how it will affect the negotiations. The question is also to me, is this terribly relevant? Is it more relevant than the Treasury? Um, what's the ultimate prize, in other words, to get the, someone who isn't German in the Bundesbank? Sorry, so who, who isn't, um, who is more lax and more, less, quote-unquote, German, in other words, so a bit more um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> orthodox in, in, in the... They're not going to let an Ausländer in there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and um, 
you know, and then if it's if it's someone like Isabel Schnabel, who's also on the governing board of the ECB, who replaces her in the at the ECB, so there's a lot of moving parts once again. Um, my own view, and I differ from my colleagues here and from other people, is that it doesn't matter too much what happens in the Bundesbank. If you look at what the Bundesbank has done, it has lost every single battle in the last 30 years. Um, every single major point leading up to the formation of the Eurozone, and indeed during the crisis when it was absolutely opposed to every sort of um, to all the monetary um, policy since Mario Draghi became um, the head of the ECB, and they you know they lobbied for challenging it legally and uh, and so on and so forth, and they have been totally unsuccessful. So I think that the Bundesbank isn't really that influential anymore. It's more a of political relevance. Uh, to negotiations as a, a sort of a bargaining chip. In my view, the finance ministry is indeed more important because, of course, they are the ones who actually sign off on fiscal reform. And I think fiscal reform is more important at the moment um, for Europe and for Germany because the ECB um, is going to hum along doing what they do, even if you know someone more radical than Weidmann is at the, at the Bundesbank. Right. I mean, would it be fair to say, though, that the the Bundesbank, I mean, you say it's been on this losing streak, which I think is true in the context of like the quantitative easing program, but it got its big win right at the creation of the ECB, right? With this like single single mandate for price stability. And so like it might have lost some of these battles, but like by having so much influence on the actual architecture and institutional structure of the European Central Bank, um, this we didn't we didn't spell out the acronym earlier, but the the central bank for the euro in Frankfurt. And by by winning on the front end, some of these sort of short term losses haven't really overweighed that like initial huge victory. No, they've they've been profoundly uh, influential in the post war era, and um, in particular after the Bretton Woods era, when most of the when when a lot of the European um, currencies were sort of bound to the Deutschmark because it was uh, the most stable currency. I would still make the point that they did lose. On very on, on particular key issues that they felt strongly about, uh, including on you know converting the currency of East Germany, they wanted a much lower, a much less favorable uh, rate, of, of course. Uh, on Italian membership of the eurozone, as something they lost out very severely. That was in the nineties, of course. And yeah, you mentioned QE, but also on other um, of other draggy policies like the outright monetary transactions, OMT, which were really what saved the Eurozone at some point. So you're right, they, they've been incredibly influential in setting this, this, this shop up, the Eurozone as it is, and, and making sure it's as dysfunctional as it is, but uh, other people had a hand in there too, and indeed the elites of other countries as well. Um, it, it was a collaborative European fuck-up to design the ECB as it is and the treaty as it is. Right, and so that segues us perfectly to this broader European issue. And so like we talk obviously about the specific actors in Germany. Um, the EU, of course, like is kind of held up to be this like supranational organization. Uh, there's a lot of good research that no, it's really intergovernmental interactions that that make the EU what it is. So I guess both on both of those sides, you know, the EU as a group of negotiations between individual countries and its sort of own technocracy above the individual countries. What space for change do you see there to try to stimulate the European economy, hopefully get a little more balance between between countries and within countries? Like, do you do you see any room for change on that level? As you say, you know, 
the source of politics in, at the European level, in my view, and um, the source of some of the more neoliberal policy making is the, the, the European Council, sorry, the Council, which, as you said, it, it's the heads, heads of state um, who set the direction for the other institutions and the general policy direction in the EU. But that also means that there's some flexibility. There's some flexibility in how the mandate of the ECB can be interpreted. The ECB has a secondary mandate, for instance, in addition to its um, price stability mandate, and it has a legal obligation to um, honor that mandate, to, to, to go through with it. It doesn't have the authority to interpret it, really. But the council can suggest how it could be interpreted. This is one specific proposal that, that a colleague of mine, Jens von der Kloster, has um, devised in recent days. That's one way. So the point is that you can't, it depends on whom you elect in, in, in your uh, member states who then make up the council, of course. Now, a lot can change at the technocratic level. And that's indeed what we're trying to work on. To, be, to put it very simply, these spending rules are based on how the potential growth of each economy is calculated on a yearly basis. And I, we are of the opinion that the way that it is calculated um, is arbitrary and inevitably leads to less spending. And what that means is that a lot of idle human, intellectual, material resources um, are wasted, essentially, in, in the different member states. And that's particularly bad for countries like Italy, which um, have had you know, 20, 30 years of, or 20 years at least, of chronic underspending and lack of economic aggregate demand domestically, low investment and declining labor market. And these are in some ways self-inflicted. So the Italian elites certainly bought into this kind of uh, institutional setup at the Eurozone level. But they depend on these fiscal rules, which are then also made in Italy, but they're based on European level decided, like rules that are decided at the European level. And that can be changed at the European level as well. Right. And so you alluded to this, but this ties into the idea of a, a non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, right? Where it's like there's, um, and, and the idea of like an output gap where you get stuck in this trap effectively, right? Where because your economy has been understimulated with lots of unemployment, they then say, oh, well, the amount of unemployment that you can handle without generating too much inflation is based on the past. Therefore, by having a shitty economy in the past, you're stuck having a shitty economy for the foreseeable future with very little way to break out of it unless there's some kind of adjustment at the technocratic level of how this is interpreted, right? Yeah, well, what they didn't say, because you can't spend anymore or because you can't bring down the unemployment rates with spending because that would lead to inflation, presumably, therefore you have to uh, bring down the structural unemployment rate. In other words, you have to do supply-side reform rather than expansive macro policy, you know, spending. Um, as you say, a trap, it's self-defeating and self-perpetuating this thing because you're, if your economy is doing poorly now, your potential output estimation is going to be incredibly low for the future and then you you spend less and then your economy is doing even poorer and then you know, so on and so forth. You, you, you sort of settle yourself in sort of a bad equilibrium when you could say, let's just try and maximize potential outputs so we can change the long-term path of growth in the economy and uh, employ as many people as possible. And that's sort of what, what, that's the principle behind one of our proposals is forget about this ridiculous um, non-accelerating um, uh, inflation rate of unemployment. 
in the EU, it, it's actually called NAVRU, so it's the non-accelerating wage rate of unemployment, but it's, it's essentially the same. It's, it's a fictional, unobservable number, really, and it leads to these bizarre situations where um, a country that has, in a severe depression like Spain, um, has a tremendous amount of economic slack, so unutilized potential, and they calculate the NAVRU, so the unemployment rate that they should have, at 25%. In other words, please, if you're below that, you have to get to that number because otherwise you're risking inflation, even though there hasn't been any inflation during that period, and there hasn't been any inflation in, year, in the years since the, since the crisis. So it's it's quite extraordinary how these, um, these 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 absurd models of the economy persist and how they how they inform um, macro policy. And to give one, I want to give you one example. It's it's a bit deeper than that. So the way you extrapolate potential output, so what the economy could grow in the future from the past, depends on really what kind of statistical method you choose. And this is really up to you know, whichever nerd happens to be in the ministry doing that and which method they choose. And in Italy, there was one case where they changed a particular kind of filter in the statistical method in one year. And if you compare that year in 2017, it was to the method they used in, the, in 2004. Um, the difference was that I think 800,000, like the, the unemployment rate was 1% higher or something like that. In other words, it, is, it, it, it meant that you should have 800,000 more Italians unemployed simply because they changed the estimation method of, of, of like the historical trend in GDP growth. It's absolutely arbitrary and it's undemocratic because nobody really has any sort of purchase on how that, how that you know, method is, is implemented. And it's partly also deliberately so. In other words, you can do very politically charged things with huge distributional effects behind closed doors by saying we're just calculating potential output that's our technocratic sort of apolitical mandate and right it sounds so technical but you're consigning hundreds of thousands of people to misery and unemployment and like it's like this extremely inhumane thing right just done done like devoid and divorced from the political process and, and divorced of any reason because it's always done with um, reference to preventing inflation and uh, rendering public finance is sustainable, when actually it increases the debt burden over time because it decreases growth. And then the ratio of you know, your total economy's um, value, so GDP to debt, is, is higher, in other words. So debt to GDP, I mean, is, is higher over time. So it's, it's self-defeating, even in the sense that it doesn't achieve the things that it sets out to do. It doesn't really render um, finance sustainable does the opposite really so it's it's, it's quite it's quite bad and so this ties into this big question now that everybody's asking right where you know it's like you said it's self-defeating in a, in a kind of economic sense and i you know basically just a moral or humanitarian sense but it's like this this devotion to keeping inflation low which historically has been quite low in europe over the last few decades and so why is there this obsession with keeping inflation low and what's going on now with that? Like, you know, do we need to start panicking about this like slight rise in inflation that we've seen above this like extremely, extremely low inflation you've seen for like the last last decade or so? I think that um, there's separate questions like why has inflation been so low? This is a complicated question, but you can, you know, you can attribute it to 
very low demand in general, but also high inequality. Well, I should say, yeah, I mean, not not necessarily the, the pure economics of why has it been low, but also like, why has there been such a focus on keeping it so low? The, the short story is the experience of the 1970s, um, in which we had very high inflation and um, unemployment growth, the so-called stagflation period, has shaped most of the policymakers and economists who are now in charge. And they think that you can very quickly end up with a situation where wages increase un in an uncontrolled fashion and that prices um, are passed on to consumers and um, eventually people have to be laid off and then you have rising unemployment and rising inflation. First of all, it has to be said that that historical period was really a huge uh, exception. So that's the first sort of, it's a poor uh, benchmark for current um, ways to deal with inflation. And the other thing is why, you know, it's, it, the deflationary uh, consensus is also informed by the fact that um, inflation is bad for um, financial capital. I mean, it erodes away uh, financial gains in particular. So, uh, and, and, and savers and the people who save are people who are, have, you know, who are rich, in other words. Particularly um, now, the savings rate is very high because so much of total income is actually people who save a lot and who invest in saving assets like um, you know, bonds or, or real estate. But what we so our growth model has fundamentally changed um, in that we our output variable is not no longer we want to maximize employment we want to control inflation, um, and that's you know a paradise for creditors, because um, if you're a debtor of course and inflation is high, your debt is fixed in real terms. So in other words, if you take off a mortgage in one year and um, you pay back a fixed amount nominally every month over that time period, and inflation rises suddenly you're paying. You know, you're still paying $100 a month or $1,000 a month or whatever, but that's worth less and your income has risen to compensate for the inflation. So it's bad for banks and finance capital if you want, if inflation is high. So if it's low, they're very happy. Um, the other thing is that we've accepted a different kind of inflation, and that's asset price inflation, in other words, which again, we, we think that prices can't rise persistently and over you know, a long period of time. But, you know, in inflation, in real estate prices, is perfectly fine. That's our new growth model now. And that, too, is, of course, very much um, amenable to the interests of, of, of financial capital, I should say. Right. And it's another way of, of increasing inequality, right? And, I mean, you've, you've seen this backlash, obviously, against, against rising prices in different forms in a lot of cities, obviously, most, most notably recently in Berlin with the, the indignant campaign. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So it's like it, it feels like it has these, like, distributional consequences of always moving capital upwards in, in multiple yeah. different ways. And the other thing is, and this relates to your, the last part of your question, which is what do we have to th fear about of, uh, of inflation now? Is it going to be permanent? Is it going to be you know, hyperinflation? Um, as certain tech bros, you know, like to claim these days. Yeah, buy, buy Bitcoin. No, exactly. We don't do financial advice. Do not buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Please don't. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 it relates to what happened last the last decades of underspending and underinvesting, because underspending and underinvesting, um, due to a concern with inflation and public debt, also means you're not investing to the supply side. You're not investing to to, to, to expand capacity, uh, and you rely on very tight supply chains, and as a result, um, which can be very easily messed up. So that relates to the fact that we have now sort of relatively high inflation again because we have these supply disruptions, and of course. If supply, you know, is is, is constrained, uh, demand is higher relative to supply, and that's the old, uh, the main driving force of price inflation, and in, in the in the short term at least, I would say that 
because these are temporary bottlenecks, um, it, it's, it's, it's not persistent. It's, it's uh, as you say, you know, temporary uh, inflation, but we don't know yet, and it depends on how all these issues are resolved. Right, and so you risk this kind of perverse situation where there's inflation panic that's due to supply issues, and so banks, the central banks, raise interest rates to try to keep the economy from, quote, overheating with high inflation, which then kills investment, which is what you need anyway to increase the capacity, which is what would actually solve the inflation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's absolutely self-defeating. Yeah, that's the kind of that's where we are today, and that's uh, hopefully hopefully what we avoid. Can you just just before we close out, um, what is the kind of stuff that you guys are working on at Data Not now? I mean, um, we we talked about it a bit before, and you talk specifically about Italy, and now you know you guys had this this paper which I saw around quite a bit about you know the the different proposals to sort of circumvent or or, or tweak um, around the margins of the debt break. And so what are you guys up to now? What are you hoping for from the next government? And how would your work play into that? Well, we're hoping that our um, proposal to tweak the debt break, um, specifically how to, to calculate potential outputs, will resonate with people in, in, in these circles. Um, it remains to be seen, of course. Uh, on As you mentioned, there's also um, my own project on Italy, which is essentially trying to explain why on earth is a G7 economy flatlining has been doing so for 20 or 30 years and nobody seems to know why. There seem to be all these different accounts of, of Italian decline and they all seem to be vaguely incompatible in many ways. So I, I am in the process of producing what I hope to be a, a comprehensive account um, of what has happened in Italy um, over the last 20, 30 years and then find some you know feasible policy proposals um, that, that can be enacted in the, in the, in the near future that, that, that turn the, the ship around. It's, it's optimistic, but I think that's um, it's a, product, a project worth engaging in. That's my own work, and it's not itself is working on you know, various other ways to, to reform fiscal policy. That's great. Yeah, that sounds like a really fascinating project, both you know what you're working on and Dith and not in general. And I definitely encourage everybody listening to yeah, follow both you and the Institute itself. So if people want to follow your work and, you know, both your, your thoughts in general and, and some of this more, more research, where can they find you? Well, they can go to the uh, Ditsanat Zukunft webpage, first of all, which is um, Ditsanat Zukunft.org. Which is a, yeah, we'll link to it. You yeah. link to it, perhaps, because it's a, it's a mouthful. It's a, the worst kind of German, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, we, we we subject our our non-German speaking listeners to quite a few uh, annoying German words. Yeah. So uh, I, th I think they're used to it. Yeah, and, we'll help them out. Though. And I subject my uh, Twitter followers to um, you know, annoying uh, puns. Uh, one of them being my Twitter handle, which is New Left Eviews. Um, which uh, you can you can definitely give me a follow on Twitter there. Uh, we'll link to that yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, great. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's really fascinating stuff. And yeah, I think, you know, both this historical account and, and looking ahead um, is is really important and definitely something we're going to stay updated on here at Spass Bremse. Um, you know, while we, we talk about homeopathy some weeks and then we, we move on to, to physical policy others. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, hopefully dynamic. We'll see what happens. Um, it's definitely important regardless of what goes on. So yeah, Dominic, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's producer Isaac here. That was your semi-weekly episode of Spaß Bremse. Thank you so much for listening. 
And just a reminder to please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening, and give us a review or share with your friends too, if you feel like it. You can also follow us on Twitter at spaßbremse underscore pod, where you can tweet us all your comments and complaints. That's at S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And as Michelle and Ted said at the beginning of this episode, we're also now on Patreon. So if you are able, your support over there would be greatly appreciated too. You can find us there at www.patreon.com slash If you weren't paying attention, that's totally okay. All this info is also in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.